What American president was a pioneer of branding? What if anything happens on a beach when lightning strikes dry sand? Hmm. Mm. Answers to those and other questions <laughs> coming up in this episode of the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha and Beach Bunny Marsha, Beach Bunny <laughs> Smith. Thank you. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Lightning is a way to gain perspective immediately, isn't it, Marcia? <laughs> we had a lot of it last night, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So tell us the story right. of lightning. What's this about? Okay, Bob, what do you think, if anything, happens on a beach when lightning hits dry sand? I would think it turns it into glass. Balls of glass. You'd think, right? And you're pretty darn close, yes. According to Reader's Digest and 13 Things You Need to Know About Sand. (laughs) (laughs) Depending on what's in it, sand must be heated to more than 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit to become glass. So, the oldest and fastest glass maker is lightning. And when a bolt strikes dry sand, it instantly melts and fuses the sand into hollow branching glass tubes. These things have a name called fulgurite. Well, those would be interesting to collect, wouldn't they? Wouldn't it? I've never, I don't think I've ever seen one, but Google fulgurite and see the pictures of sand hit by lightning. Very curious. Is it sort of like uh, pictures of uh, snowflakes and things like that? No, I wouldn't say that. It's just very uh, bizarre-looking structures and uh, pieces of stuff. So when lightning hits sand, the answer is it creates... Hollow branching glass tubes. Ah. Yeah, and it forms all sorts of different shapes. There's more than one reason to stay away from the lightning on a beach, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Number one, you don't want to get struck. Number two, you don't want to walk on these glass tubes. Yeah, well, I don't know if they hurt or not. I didn't go to that... I would would think they wouldn't be good on the old feet. Well, Marcia, one of America's presidents was a pioneer of branding. Actually, there may have been a couple, but who was the first American president who was a pioneer of branding? Of branding. Oh, JFK? No. Before? Yeah. Way before. Way before. Way before. Way before. Okay. He actually put his name on merchandise. Really? Mm-hmm. Lincoln Logs? Lincoln Logs. <laughs> no. Okay, what? It was George Washington, of all people, believe it or not. No, I don't believe it. Yeah, we think of uh, the founding fathers as farmers, owners of large plantations, but George Washington really didn't fit that mold, and this came clear in an interesting new book called George Washington Entrepreneur by John Berlau. Now listen to this. George Washington built a constellation of Mount Vernon farms, 8,000 acres of farms that encircled where he lived, and he turned it into an industrial village. He evolved from farmer to entrepreneur by abandoning tobacco, which was Virginia's top crop at the time because he could tell it was depleting the soil. Uh Now, before we go any farther, we know the only reason George Washington could be a big entrepreneur was because he had... A wife with money. Slaves. (laughs) That too. And slaves, yeah. (laughs) 
Anyway, after experimenting with 60 grains, he settled on wheat. He built multiple businesses that spun off on that wheat in an early example of vertical integration. So here's where the branding comes in. He not only raised the grain, he ground it into flour in a state-of-the-art automated grist mill. And he packaged it into bags branded with his name, which were shipped globally. Really? That's interesting. (laughs) Buyers throughout North America, the Caribbean, and England valued the G. Washington brand for its consistent high-quality grain. And think of all the streets and high schools he put his name on. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Uh, No, no, that's not. (laughs) The wheat operation also supported a profitable whiskey distillery. There you go. One of the largest in America. He produced 11,000 gallons of whiskey a year. And we'll have some more facts on him as we go along. Okay. Okay, Bob. Here's a word question. I got a few of them in this this episode. Word origins. uh, By Bob and Marsha Smith. (laughs) Why is something great or a real knockout called a doozy? Like, wow, that boat is a real doozy. That was because of the Duesenberg uh, car that came out in the 30s. What was the name of the car? The Duesenberg. It was a big, it was a huge, long car. That's right. Beautiful car. Very good. Uh, The first doozy was the Duesenberg, an American car created by two brothers of the same name. It was considered state-of-the-art at the time, and it was produced between 1921 and 1937. It was considered more elite than the Cadillac. And, in fact, its high-performance engine was even put into boats and airplanes. Mm. That's so. That, airplanes. It was a doozy. It was a doozy. <laughs> yeah, I know there were pictures of Gary Cooper and some other big movie stars had Duesenbergs. Okay, yeah, they're huge, huge monsters things, Huge cars, yeah, yeah. Sort of like the Hummer today. Well, uh, I think it had a more sex appeal than well, the Hummer. Well, more sex appeal. Let's take the tank over to Piggly Weekly. You know, what's the point? Okay, go ahead, Bob. I have another uh, related to the president's uh, question. What first lady was cross-eyed and her husband wouldn't correct her disability because he liked her that way? Well, you had to have your husband correct the disability? No, no. He just didn't want her to get her to, face okay, changed. Uh, her face changed. Okay, give me a century. It was the 19th century. All right, so... One of the presidents we kind of admire after reading uh, some books. Grant? Yes, U.S. Grant. Yeah, his wife. She had. Uh, she was cross-eyed, but he refused to let her have oh, yeah, an eye operation. Oh, yeah, he adored her. Yeah, he, he thought she looked great the way it was. Just sort of, I like that. Speaking of first ladies, I have another question for you. How did steel tycoon Andrew Carnegie contribute to the welfare of presidential first ladies? Now, we always think of Andrew Carnegie and, well, those big robber barons, they were monopolists, you know, they drove other people out of business. Uh-huh. But Andrew Carnegie, of course, we all oh, know, yeah, contributed to the libraries. Lot, yes, but was... what did he do to help first ladies? Uh, you got me, Bob. He started the uh, dress museum for first ladies. No, <laughs> no, much know. more important than that. Until Congress took on the responsibility of providing for widowed presidential oh. wives, he personally paid pensions to former first ladies. Well, God bless him. Isn't wow. that cool? That's amazing. I thought that was interesting. Okay. All Speaking right. of interesting, mm-hmm. what famous artist, Bob, of our time accepted commissions to do magazine ads for Kellogg's cornflakes to help pay for his treatment of chronic depression? Andy Warhol? <laughs> I just thought that would be the perfect yeah, person it would, for that. Yeah, would, but no. Someone, you'll be surprised. Really? He had chronic depression. Yeah. Chronic depression. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. Who was it? Okay. It's been demonstrated that if you pretend to be happy, even when you're not, it often helps, you know, smile when your heart is breaking. (laughs) In this case, it's painting uplifting images. And the artist is Norman Rockwell. I was going to say Norman Rockwell, but I thought, nah, he yeah. wasn't depressed. I the, couldn't imagine him being depressed. The, oh, big time. The really? much-beloved artist struggled with happiness, and he moved to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where he and his wife could both receive treatment for chronic depression. I thought he moved there because he just loved Massachusetts. No, that's because they were patients of the world-famous psychoanalyst Eric Erickson, with whom Rockwell racked up such a big therapy bill that he did the gig for cornflakes. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. And I didn't know that Norman Rockwell painted anything for Kellogg's cornflakes. Yeah, well, I think he kept that on uh That alone would be depressing. I have to do this in order to survive. <laughs> yeah, well, he and his wife had massive... Bills with that psychoanalyst. That Eric is amazing. Erickson. Yeah, that was interesting. I had no idea. That's fascinating. Who knew that? Uh-huh. Okay, back to George Washington, Marsh. I've got a couple more things about other businesses he had. He had businesses on land. He had businesses on water, too. Do you have any idea what the water business was? It was so huge for George Washington. Oh, golly. I don't know. Did he? Did, oh. uh, he built pontoon boats? Well, it was a fishing company. He also harvested the nearby Potomac River with a fishing fleet of small boats crewed by slaves every spring hauling in shad and herring during the breeding runs, and they captured 1.5 million fish in a good year. George Washington. The nets that they used were woven in George Washington's own textile operations. So wheat, whiskey, fishing, fishing nets, ropes, ships— all part of George Washington Incorporated. I'll be darned. As he evolved from the uh, farmer to the entrepreneur. So what? when you think of George Washington as a farmer, think bigger. No wonder he and Alexander Hamilton and their Federalist Party supported banking and national credit and investment and manufacturing, while Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and their followers promoted an agrarian utopia with <laughs> with plantations manned yeah. by slaves, you yeah, know. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, that comes again from a new book called George Washington, Entrepreneur by John Berlau. I assume you're reading that now. It's very interesting. Okay, let's get to the term corny. Sometimes okay. <laughs> you're called corny, aren't you, Bob? What? When Which did mi- somebody call me that? Corny is considered a late 19th century theatrical expression when theater groups often from New York, traveled to the hinterlands and felt smugly superior to their audiences. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. According to Who Put the Butter in Butterfly, these thespians felt these audiences preferred lowbrow comedy and trite and sentimental melodrama. The preferences of these corn-fed audiences soon became known as corny. Well, that makes sense. I can see that because they're going out where the corn is made. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's too bad that they thought they were so superior to everyone. Oh, yes. There's still a lot of that going on. (laughs) Okay, I got another presidential question for you here. What U.S. president had to marry his wife twice because her divorce from a former husband wasn't final when they married? Yes. Really? Well, who would that be? A famous president. Yeah, well, who? His wife's name was Rachel. I'm giving you clues. (laughs) Rachel. He's from Tennessee. Andrew Jackson. Okay. She left her first husband, who got permission from the Virginia legislature to sue for divorce. Now, Jackson married Rachel, and two years later, they discovered eh, divorce decree had only then been made final by the court. So they'd been married for a couple of years. 
She was a bigamist. Ah. Married to two people at the same time. Mm -hmm. So Jackson decided he wanted to marry her again, and he set a local record for duels, by the way. And some of them were over the question of his wife's honor. I wonder why. Oh, geez. Yeah, imagine that coming up today on social media. Oh, my. That built your career. What was her name? Rachel. Rachel? Yes. What's with the Rachel? Living in sin, the wanton woman. Okay, hey, Bob. Who was the first mom to vote for her son for president of the United States? Oh, that's a good one. Okay, so women were given suffrage in the 1920s. So I would say it would have to be someone like FDR's mother. Good. Franklin Roosevelt's mother. Sarah. Sarah Roosevelt. Women got the vote in 1920 with the 19th Amendment, for white women anyway. So uh, the first one with a mother alive that undoubtedly voted for son would have been Sarah Roosevelt. And one of those other questions about presidents that I always find fascinating, because the guy was president when we were alive, who was the first president born in a hospital in the United States? Uh, It was, uh, yeah, um, wasn't Truman. No. No, no. It was was after Truman. It wasn't Eisenhower. Nope. Okay, who, Bob? It was Jimmy Carter, believe it or not. I always thought that was fascinating because Jimmy Carter was uh, elected in the 1970s, I think 76, wasn't it? And he actually was the first U.S. president born in a hospital. Yeah, that's hard to believe. I thought we'd been modern. And he's still alive. Yeah, I thought we had been modern far before that time, you know? Yeah, Yeah, it's always amazing to, to know that. I was born in a log hospital. A log hospital, yes, okay. we've heard that. Why Why is an exact likeness of someone, Bob, called a spitting image? Oh, I thought it was dead ringer. Okay, spitting image. Why would it be a spitting think, image? Think about it. There's always some kind of story behind these there expressions. There is, and the phrase goes back to the glory that was the British Empire, when just about every man was familiar with the spit and polish discipline of military life. When a man polished his boots, he used saliva to bring them to where he could see his own reflection. Hence the origin, spitting image. Wow. So he had to see himself in the different kind of... Yeah, make it shine until you could see your own reflection. The spitting image. Isn't that interesting? Yes, it is. I had no idea that was it. That's fascinating. Okay, we'll be back with more in just a minute. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Okay, we're back. Bob and Marcia Smith with the off-ramp. I have one more presidential-oriented question for you today, only it's a first lady. What first lady regularly carried a pistol in her purse? Well, <laughs> I'll say uh, that's pistol-packing mama. Mm-hmm. Let's see. And I'll th- Jackie Kennedy. She had that little pill box hat and purse, okay. matching purse. I can see, I can see something I'm like that. I'm yeah. I don't know. Eleanor Roosevelt. Did she now? Yeah. Soon after FDR took office during the Depression, uh, she received an alarming number of letters threatening her life, and so the Secret Service insisted she carry a pistol in her purse to protect herself, and so she did. Because she was so outspoken, people hated her. I think that was, a lot was of it. Hate speak, even then. Yeah, because she was outspoken, and that was very unusual for a woman, and a less, let alone a first lady. They never came out and really talked a lot. Okay, two quickies going along with the presidential theme. Okay. Besides his famous speak softly and carry a big stick, what else did Teddy Roosevelt carry? Oh, what else did he carry? Yeah. (laughs) The big stick. Yeah. Did he carry a revolver too? Yes, he did. Oh, really? He carried a gun so he could have some chance of shooting the assassin before he could shoot me. Now, he he was uh, after an assassinated president, which was... uh, 
McKinley. Yeah, so he was after that. He thought, and there was he had they had no protection back then. Not like the Secret Service. Not today. like today. Yes. And after his presidential years, Teddy Roosevelt, there was an assassination attempt, attempt. in Milwaukee. I know. He I'm, was almost killed. Yeah, and what saved his life? His speech. That's right. The big fat speech he had rolled up in his pocket. <laughs> There's something to being loquacious. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> All so right. his words protected him. They defended him. You yes. might say. And the second one, you should get this quickly. The country doubled in size under which president? Uh, that would be Thomas Jefferson. That's right. And yeah. why? Because of the Louisiana Purchase. That's correct. Okay, you may go. What? <laughs> I may go? Oh, I may, I may read you something? Is that what yes, you mean? You, you may ask a question now. Okay, Marcia, we're heading towards football season. Yay! Did American colleges and universities welcome football to college campuses, or did they fight it? I would assume just because you're asking it, they fought it. A little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a little of both. You don't think of that now because, you know, what a college wants is a good football team, right? Yeah, Because that brings in a lot of money, money and yeah. people. But uh, Cornell University began playing intramural football in 1869, but in 1874, when its president and co-founder Andrew Dixon White heard that a team with his college's name on it was going to be traveling to the University of Michigan for the first intercollegiate football game, he put his foot down. He, no, he forbid the team to make the trip. He said, I will not permit 30 men to travel 400 miles merely to agitate a bag of wind. So, no. <laughs> Cornell. One Wait a of the, minute. Cornell was not a pioneer that embraced it. Sounds like an argument I'm having with you. Oh, yeah, the bag of wind. <laughs> it took 13 years before Cornell played its first game against another college. That was in 1887. Wow. And even then, the uh, team went coachless in its first three seasons. They just didn't believe in it. But the Big Red took off in the 1890s with the uh, famous coaches like uh, Glenn Pop Warner. And despite its shaky beginning, Cornell's teams have played more than 130 years of football. And they won five national championships with 20 All-Americans and seven players in the College Football Hall of Fame. But at the beginning, no, the college did not want a football team. Huh. Okay, how did one of history's most feared leaders... Attila the Hun, mm. die. How did he die? Yeah. Well, usually those people didn't die a long and quiet death. <laughs> they didn't go home and uh, retire. <laughs> right. So usually it was during a battle. So I would assume Attila the Hun died in battle uh, yeah. and was uh, you know, succeeded by his sons or something like yes, that. Yes, you would think that, but no. Okay, tell okay. me. Okay. On one of his many first wedding nights, <laughs> hmm? yeah, he had a few wives. And uh, this turned out to be his last one because on his uh, first night of his wedding night with his last wife, heavy with wine and sleep, Hun died in 453 A.D. from a nosebleed. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. From a nosebleed? Yeah, he kind of drowned and he, he couldn't, he didn't wake up and he w went down his throat. Wow. And uh, he kind of uh, drowned in his own esophageal blood. Oh, that sounds awful. Uh, Yes, it does. Well, Hun was pretty awful. Here's a fun Hun That's fact. <laughs> a fun Hun fact, okay. <laughs> Nobody knows where he's buried. That's because he was put to rest in a burial site that only his friends who buried him knew where it was. And just to make sure they didn't tell anybody, they killed them all. Oh, no. <laughs> Go off and bury him. Don't yeah. tell us where. Okay, and, now and you're now dying. Now you're dead. Hey, yes. there's your reward. Yes, yes. Oh, God. All right, just one more on those frisky Huns. Frisky Huns. <laughs> Apparently, they were considered pretty ugly guys. 
And it didn't help that Hun babies had their heads bound between two boards for six months. Oh, this is like some of those African tribes yeah. did that kind of stuff. So that they would have cone or conical-shaped heads. Mm. That didn't add to their good looks, but they thought it was really cute. Well, it they looked like fierce warriors when yes, they came at they you. Were very, yeah, I think they were born with big mustaches, too, the babies. I'm not sure. <laughs> really? How's that possible? I, I'm kidding. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. I always find it interesting how companies got started or what made them big successes. So I've got a question for you here from the book industry, okay? Okay. What book turned Simon & Schuster into a top publishing firm, even though the company didn't put its name on the book because they feared a financial failure? Really? Yeah. Oh, something, was it in my lifetime book? No, it was published in 1924, and it went along with a craze that was going on, but they didn't put their name on it. Was it something like uh, How to Succeed Without Really Trying by, what's his name, Carnegie kind of book? No, not not, not like that. Uh, Tell me. It was the crossword puzzle book. (laughs) Really? Yeah, published in 1924. The 20s were the heyday of the crossword puzzle. It's golden age, Ah. as uh, Americans popularized this was a British-born game. Okay. And Simon & Schuster put out the first crossword book under the title Plaza Publishing because they were afraid the book would fail and the publishing house would suffer. They didn't want to be associated with it. Mm. But the book became Coward. an outstanding bestseller in the 20s, and its revenue helped Simon & Schuster grow into a successful company. So you never know. Yeah, yeah, never know. You know, don't feel bad because it's a crossword puzzle book. You know, Those people are fun. Want it. Yeah, yeah. that is fun. Okay. I got two quickies, Okay. Okay. What president, smarty pants, married a direct descendant of Princess Pocahontas? What president married a direct descendant of Princess Pocahontas? Yes. Didn't know there was one, did you? No. And what what years, uh, what century was this? In the last century? The 19th century or the 20th century? 19th. 19th century. So it was probably somebody around the 1880s, maybe? I don't know what year he was president. It's not in my notes here. You want me to look? No, that's okay. Uh, Gee, I don't know. Who was it? Only 16 months after his first wife died, Woodrow Wilson married an attractive widow by the name of Mrs. Edith Bolingalt. She was a ninth-generation direct descendant of Princess Pocahontas. Wow, that's pretty impressive. that's in my little presidential tidbits card I was sent. Okay, all right. (laughs) And okay, quickly, how fast does a bird have to fly, Bob, to stay aloft? How fast does it have yeah, to fly? To stay alive. Oh, I never think about the speed of I birds. Know. They're darting past you at yes. um, really tremendous speeds when you think about it. What's the minimum speed that they don't fall out of the sky? 20 miles per hour? 11 miles per hour. Really? Yeah, to keep itself going. Just thought you'd want to know. That is interesting, though, because mm-hmm. we don't associate speeds that slow with something, but that's fast. That's, well, that's pretty fast. It's quite a dart across yeah. the yard, Have you ever tried it? to go 11 miles an hour on the treadmill? <laughs> and, well, instantly, too. Yeah. I mean, think about yeah. a bird. They just take off, and they're going, and they're yeah. going at that speed. Yeah. Okay, I have a uh, history question for you. Okay, do. How did a beauty parlor lead to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor? Um, a beauty par- Well... Can you give me a little more information? Uh, No, I'll tell you the story. All right. The young German woman was named Ruth Kuhn. She operated a beauty parlor at Pearl Harbor, and she offered the best, most inexpensive service on the base. And all the officers' wives came there, and naturally they talked and talked and talked about the base activities. Oh, so she told them. Well, what they didn't know was that Ruth, her father, Dr. 
Bernard Kuhn, their mother Friedel, and their little brother Hans Joachim were all spies wow. who were funneling information to the Japanese. Wow. That they, makes sense. Perfect sense. And you talk up a storm in a beauty salon. Oh, God, Trust yeah. Trust me. And they took nature expeditions, too, sailing expeditions. They gathered information on ships. Little Hans even befriended the soldiers and sailors who took him aboard the destroyers and gave him a little tours of their vessels. Wow. They did not know he had been coached to ask military questions by his father and that he was debriefed after those tours. But no one spy tool proved greater than that of the beauty parlor that Ruth oh, operated. I believe it. Oh, that's insidious and clever, of Is course. It? Go to where the wives chit-chat. Exactly. Amazing. And the coons weren't discovered until the Pearl Harbor attack when somebody finally noticed coded messages being flashed from their attic to the Japanese consulate in <laughs> Honolulu. <laughs> What's that? What are, what are those? What are they flashing lights there? Lights out of the roof of that. Yeah, so although some family members were sentenced to death or long prison sentences, all were freed after only a few years in prison. But really? Yeah. That's from well, the People's Almanac going wow, back a few they years. they were freed, huh? Well, I don't know. That's uh, pretty easy. You don't know how you feel about that, do you, Yeah, Marsh? I don't. I mean, somebody that caused that much havoc to mm. the country. This is an interesting question, Marcia. What famous pornographic novel was written by a man who wanted to get out of prison? <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, it wasn't Lady Chatterley. No, no. It was uh it was that one that I was uh, just skipped to the good pages, that one? I don't know, Marsh. I, I didn't tell I wasn't me the name there, of the book. But you had this disgusting past. I don't know. <laughs> What was the name of the book? Fanny Hill. Oh. The classic oh, I, of dirty literature written in the 1750s. Uh, John Cleland was 41. He was broke when he returned to England from Bombay, where he worked for the British East India Company. He'd lost his job in a quarrel with his boss and eventually ended up in debtor's prison. So he wrote the book for a 28-year-old printer who offered to bail him out of prison in Newgate if he would write a dirty novel. So the printer earned 10,000 British pounds and the novel became an underground literary classic for two centuries and John Cleland got out of jail. All right. That was his that's get out of good, jail card. Yeah, you know? that's a good story and very, uh, very industrious uh, way to do it. I like it. Okay, I'm going to finish with a quote by okay. Niccolo Machiavelli. Okay. He said, I desire to go to hell and not to heaven. In the former place, I will enjoy the company of popes, kings, and princes. That's what, in hell? While in the latter, only beggars, monks, and apostles. <laughs> oh, see, he would, find, he would find heaven boring compared to hell. So he wants to be in hell where all the corrupt people are. That's funny. Okay, I don't think he had any uh, problem with going to where he wanted. I think he went where he wanted to go. I think so. Based on that. <laughs> Full of no good, Bob. Full of no good. Full of no oh, good. bad to the bone. Okay. <laughs> all right, that's it for this episode of The Off-Ramp. We hope you join us next time. Okay, that's it for this time here on The Off-Ramp. We want to remind you, if you'd like to send us anything, you're welcome to one of our uh, contributors sent us a whole book recently. Yes. Stephen Short. Hence all these presidential questions. And there'll be more in the future. Thank hey, you, Steve. We're going to let Marcia ask me those questions in the future here, so that's great. But uh, if you just have a question you want to ask and you want to direct it to one of us, you can go to our website. Theofframp.show. Go to. Contact us. And then you can leave your question, your answer, uh, and your name and address. Your children's uh, middle names. Here we go again. You always want social that. Social security No, number. no, no, Marsh. We don't need social security numbers. Oh, okay. Would you please stop with that? You could sell them. All right. Here we go. <laughs> could make some money. That's it. Time to go now. <sighs> Time to go.
I mean, can't stop this soon enough. All right. <laughs> I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more of The, the Off-Ramp. Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.